Merry Christmas. It wasn't nearly as excited as you were for Micah. So, but that's okay. We'll get you worked up there. If you have your Bibles with you, please open them to Luke chapter 2. We will be working through the Advent passage that Jean read earlier uh, in the service, verses 8 through 20. Uh, I would call your attention specifically to verse 14, which is really where we're going to be focused this morning. As you get older, as I get older, I, I realize how little I understood as a child of the things that I saw and the things that I uh, sang. Uh, whether it was in music or in movies, I missed a whole bunch of different plot lines in movies, uh, double entendres and, and puns that would come up I would miss. Uh, I think that things are funny and I, I remember them. And then when we watch movies with my kids, I realize that they're missing half of the really good jokes and, and pray that they will get them over time. And it's amazing as children how much of this sort of unknowing we put up with. We can watch things and we can hear things that make no sense at all and we just sort of put up with it because adults do stuff all the time that makes no sense to children at all. I was, uh, when I was up in Houghton uh, in college, there was a, a woman uh, who was, a, she was a grown woman now and, and she had children at the time and uh, she was telling me about how she had always misunderstood the lyrics to Silent Night especially the, f- the first stanza, Silent Night, Holy Night. All is calm, all is bright, round young virgin, mother and child, holy infant, so tender and mild, sleep in heavenly peace, sleep in heavenly peace. And she said that when she was a girl, before she knew how to read, every time she heard the song, she didn't think it was sleep in heavenly peace. She thought the words were sleep in heavenly peas. And that Jesus was somehow laying on this bed of green peas. And I would like to know in her like little girl mind, why in the world we would sing that? You know, I, I'm sure that she tried to rationalize it, maybe because there's farm animals there. It's a farm. Maybe there are peas everywhere. Who knows why? Uh, but she always sang that. And she, she thought it was, you know, once she found out that it was sleep in heavenly peace, it made so much more sense. It's interesting. I, I, we, we come today to talk about peace and, and we, we've, Working through our Advent, we, we've gone through prophecy, faith, and joy, and now peace. And peace is sort of a trite thing today, right? So if any of you are going to enter into Miss America, I know one thing about that, that you need to say that you want world peace, right? If you are going to be a political leader, you want world peace. It becomes something that's so common, it's trite now to say that you want world peace. What does it mean to have peace given to us? What does it mean that Christ is a prince of peace? What does it mean for us today to come and to talk about peace? I hope to clarify some of that from this passage for us this morning in verse 14 specifically. The peace of God, the peace that is given to us, is not a peace like the peace of the world. It is not a peace that changes based on circumstances. It is not a, cha- a, a peace that is movable in us, that is changeable in us, but it is a peace that is solid regardless if we are brought high and exalted into palaces or brought low into prisons. We can have the peace of God with us at all times. This is the peace that Christ has brought. So let us think through from this passage several things that we know about true peace. First, true peace needs God's glory. True peace needs God's glory. In verse 14 of this passage, we read that the angels show up to these shepherds. And there was, at first the shepherds were minding their own business out in the field, watching their flocks by night. And one angel shows up and that was enough. But then a multitude of angels, a host of angels, which we will come back to, show up. And they proclaim glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. 
And it's easy to think that that and there is simply conjoining two separate things. Like when you go to the grocery store and you need to get peanut butter and pot roast, those things aren't necessarily going together, right? But you know that you have to buy each of them. But this is the sum cap summary of everything that the angels are saying, everything that they're singing to these shepherds, they have come to announce these two things. We should expect that these two things have something to do with one another. That giving God glory and peace be coming to the earth have something to do with one another. And indeed, we are right to think that. Romans 3.23 reminds us that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Jesus Christ has come as a Savior to deal with our sin, and our sin is directly related to the fact that we do not glorify God with our lives. That is the summation, the very pinnacle of what sin is. It could be simply rule-breaking, but it is also just not giving God the glory that he is due. God's glory is found in his characteristics. It's not just this sort of radiating beauty from God, but it is beauty that is portrayed in who he is, in his perfections, among all of his characteristics. If you remember, way back in the book of Exodus, Moses, after the golden calf incident, is pleading with God to be kind and merciful to his people. And in a fit of outrageous declaration, he asks God, can I see your glory? God says, well, hold on there. Moses, I I can show you some of my glory. I can show you some of my beauty. I will pass by you, but you can't see it full on or you will die. Then in chapter 34, verses 5 through 7, we read this as he puts him in the cleft in the rock and allows to pass by him. We read in verse 5, The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord, The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and on the children's children to the third and fourth generation." Scriptures make very much, not out of the appearance of God as he passes by, but out of the characteristic of God as he passes by. The Lord doesn't show him his glory. He proclaims to him what his glory is. He proclaims to him that he is a God that is full of love and faithfulness, who is slow to anger, that he keeps his love, that he is steadfast in it, but that he is also a just God and he will condemn those who are guilty. This is the glory of God. When we give glory to God, we do so by rightly apprehending his glorious nature, by rightly apprehending his characteristics. Why is it then that we can't have peace without God's glory? You can't have peace without God's glory because, first of all, you will never truly believe that somebody is your equal. You will never see them eye to eye unless you understand that that person is rightfully made in God's image as well. If you base their worth on anything else besides being made in God's image, you will always be able to find deficiencies in them. You will always be able to find reasons that they are not equal with you. You will always be able to find reasons to run them over and to oppress them. 
wars happen because people do not recognize the glory of God in creating all mankind. Wars happen because men and women think that they are better and that they deserve more than other people. Strife and divisions happen in even smaller context amongst his people, amongst every people, amongst families and brothers and sisters because one thinks that they deserve something that the other does not because they fail to recognize the image of a glorious God in each one of us. You cannot ever have peace without recognizing the glory of God. And what's more, you can't ever have peace without recognizing that God is glorious because we don't listen to him. He tells us how to have peace with one another. He tells us how to walk with one another. He tells us how to forgive one another. Without recognizing that, we will never have peace. We give glory to God by hearing his voice, by obeying his word, by admiring his beauty, by adoring his goodness, by praising his works, by thankful reminders of his kindness, by seeking his wisdom. We praise God and we give God glory by doing this kind of stuff. And what glory we see here. We give out birth announcements today. Some people do cute videos. Some people just say, hey, we're, we're pregnant. We're having a kid. God, when he sends his son, sends angels to proclaim it. But he does even better than that. God doesn't just send angels, but he sends another child forward. And that child, who is nothing but an airling to point at Christ, he announces him with angels. He is indeed glorious above the one who is being gloried in the beginning of the book of Luke. So glorious is the messenger for the glory of Jesus that he announces his birth with angels. Jesus is indeed glory and the coming of the Prince of Peace comes with God's glory in tow. True peace needs God's glory. But secondly, true peace is God's peace. True peace is God's peace. It's not a peace like the world. Jesus in John 14, 27 sums this up very, very well. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give you. Not as the world gives do I give you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. He says two things. It's not just general peace that he's giving to you. He's not just giving you a peace that is like the world's peace. He says, I don't give it like the world because it's not the world's peace. What is the world's peace? The world's peace looks a lot like parents with their kids. Our kids don't naturally get along. We force those kids to get along, right? We drag them to get along. They're not actually getting along. We just tell them that they have to get along or there will be bigger consequences for all of you. Note. So, we do this today. This is not just a parent-to-child type thing or children-to-children type thing, right? Nations do this. This is why we have sanctions on nations. This is why the U.S. says we're not going to trade with you until you get along with this country. This is why we have sanctions, not only economic, but military sanctions on other countries. This is why wars happen. We enter into wars so that we can grab another country by the neck and say, you need to treat people right when done in the best of spirits. This is the world's peace, and the world's peace can always be upended by the other side. It can always be ended in a moment's notice. In the Old Testament, as the people of Judah were being led eventually into exile, the people of Judah were attempting to figure out what to do with this Babylon problem. The Babylonians were going to come 
And they knew they were going to come. And they were trying to arrange a military way of, of getting Egypt to help out or getting other countries to help support them militarily that they can avoid this disastrous consequence that they might have peace. And they were being told that God won't let this happen. God won't let you go into exile. And Jeremiah stands up in front of the people and in Jeremiah 6.14 says this, They have healed the wound of my people lightly saying, peace, peace, when there is no peace. That the thing that these prophets were doing when they got up and they said, listen, there will be peace, we'll make peace, we'll, we'll somehow fix this problem. Whatever the problem is, we, we will fix it. Jeremiah says, they've, they've healed the wound of my people lightly. They, they haven't healed it fully. It's like putting a cast on a broken leg, only letting somebody walk on it while it's broken. It's never going to heal. They, they take the cast off and it breaks immediately. There is no true healing there. There's no true healing because the, the peace of the world will never last. It's always fading. It's always slippery. It's always gone. And what's more, the people didn't realize that what they needed was not the peace of the world. They need the peace of God. Their real problem was not Babylon. Your real problem, friend, is not your enemies. Your real problem is God. That was the problem for them. Jeremiah repeats that exact same phrase. 6.14 is repeated in chapter 8, verse 11. The end of that section comes in Jeremiah chapter 9, verses 23 through 24, where Jeremiah says, Thus says the Lord, Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches, but let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. Does that sound familiar? It sounds a lot like Exodus. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. What they needed was not more military strength. What they needed was not some wisdom. What they needed was to know and to trust in the Lord. It is the Lord's peace that is brought. Even in this passage, we can see that it is God's peace that he has given. It is peace amongst those with whom he is pleased. He is giving it out. It is a gift that he gives. And because he is the one giving it, it is his peace. It is a peace because it is between you and God that cannot ever be taken away from you. Jesus himself said, it is my peace I give to you. His peace, if it was a peace with the world, was about to be shattered because he knew he was going to the cross. This is why he said, I am leaving you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. When he talks about leaving them, he reminds them that his peace is not like a peace with the world. We should be reminded even more in here, in this particular passage, of what this peace looks like. The shepherds are out in the field. They're minding their own business. One angel, one angel shows up and they are terrified. Every time angels show up in this particular group of passages, especially early on, there is terror when they show up. We have a single angel showing up to Zechariah in Luke 1. He is terrified. We have a single angel showing up to Mary. She is likewise afraid and needs to be supported. Here, another angel appears. And so if we are reading carefully, we'd think an angel appears, he declares something, don't be afraid, he strengthens them, and then there is narration afterwards. And there is an appearance of an angel, there is strengthening, there is a message, and 
away they go. Here we would expect that there would be an appearance of an angel, narration, don't be afraid, strengthening, and then going away. But what we have is distinctly different than what has occurred before. All of a sudden, when we would expect there to be a message from them and then nothing more, we hear this suddenly. Suddenly, in verse 13, there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host. And we hear that word host and we think, oh, a multitude of heavenly host. Either host is used today to describe someone who is having you over to their house, they are your host, or to describe a multitude of people. I have a host of problems with you people, right? So we can use the word host in several different ways, but the way it's being used here is not that. The way it's being used here, although probably poor in the English, is meant for armies. This is not, this is not, a choir with robes. These are angels dressed for war. This is more like an announcement of peace that is coming from commanders who have charged out to one another in the middle of an ancient battlefield and look at one another and say, here are my terms for peace. God is coming to the earth and he is saying, here are my terms for peace. This is my child. These are my terms for peace with you. If you will have peace with me, this child is a means by which you will have peace with me. If you don't want peace, his army is waiting to come and to destroy. The peace that God leaves is a peace with him because he is coming back to destroy all people. This is exactly what we have in the book of Revelation. In chapter 12, we read that a great sign appears in heaven. There's a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of 12 stars. She was pregnant and crying out in birth pains and the agony of giving birth. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on his head seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. This woman who is giving birth is both Mary and the entire waiting world of Israel who is waiting for their savior. And when the child comes, Satan wants to devour it. Why? Not because he is a symbol of peace, but because he is just as much a symbol of war. It is a first attack on the kingdom of Satan. And as he tries to devour this child, she gave birth to the male child, one who is to rule all nations, not the dragon, but he will rule all nations with a rod of iron. But her child was caught up to God and his throne. The woman flees into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God and she is nourished there. Now war arose in heaven. Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon and the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was defeated and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. The coming of Christ is not simply a declaration of peace, but it is a declaration of war, but is also a mentioning of the peace that you can have. It is his peace treaty with you. If you will have peace with me before my armies strike, you will have it through this child. Otherwise, you will suffer my wrath. It is God's peace. True peace is God's peace. And thirdly, true peace is God's choice. Gene read earlier from the KJV. Many of you remember that particular version. It is incredibly poetic. It is built into the consciousness of America and probably England as well. It is built into us because not only have we read it from the KJV, but we've seen the Peanuts Christmas special where Linus gets up with his blanket and tells everybody this, right? And it's, it's part and parcel of, of what we do during Christmas time. 
Generally now, however, scholars realize that verse 14 should read slightly different. It's not just goodwill to all men or peace to all men, but it's peace among those with whom he is pleased, with whom God is pleased. If God is pleased with you, then you will have peace. How do you please God? This is the same idea that we found with Mary. When the angel shows up and says, Hail Mary, full of grace. No, he doesn't say that. It says, Hail Mary, O favored one. Right? She is the favored one. Throughout scripture, we have people being given favor all the time. And it's very easy for us to look at those people who receive favor from the Lord and see good characteristics and think that those are the reason why God has actually favored them. We we read of Mary, of her high character and quality, that she turns from this awesome weight that is placed upon her and simply says to God, let your will be done. But we realize that she was favored before we hear that. Throughout all of Scripture, those people whom God favors we read of his favor upon them before we read of any sort of characteristics. Noah, one who we read of in the sixth chapter of Genesis, being a righteous man, blameless in his generation. We think, oh, what a mighty character of God. And indeed he was. But before we read of that, one verse before that, we read, Noah was favored by God. Not that he was righteous and blameless first. We read of that second. What is most important is that he was favored by God Abraham is the same way. We read of Abraham's lineage. We know where he comes from. We know where he's going. We know nothing about the man. The first thing we hear is God showing up to Abram and saying, I am going to bless you and I'm going to make your name mighty and I'm going to make you a blessing to all nations. He does it to his son, Isaac. When Isaac is born, he is proclaimed to be the son of promise before he's done anything good or bad. Not Ishmael, but Isaac. The same thing with Isaac's kids, Jacob and Esau. Before they were born, Jacob will reign over Esau. Jacob have I loved, Esau have I hated. Why? No reason. God favored him. David, before we hear anything about David, the eighth son of Jesse, God chooses him. He chose him. Why? Yes, he has good character. He chose him for the simple reason that God chooses whom he wills. This is not meant to fill you with pride. If you are chosen, my goodness. This has to be incredibly humbling for you. He didn't choose you because you were grand. He didn't choose you because you were wise. He didn't choose you because you were pretty. He didn't choose you because you give good gifts. He didn't choose you because you have a right heart. He didn't choose you because you have all the characteristics that he was looking for in a child. He doesn't need you. He didn't choose you because you were kind and nice and spectacular in all of your idiosyncratic ways. He didn't choose you because of any of that. He chose you for the mere fact that his favor rested upon you. He chose you simply because he's God. And he can choose whom he wants to give his gift to. It is, it is a gift. He didn't have to give it to you. If he had to give it to you, we would call it a tax. It's not a tax, it's a gift. Even here, he gives it to the shepherds. Shepherds are told in this day, there is born for you a Savior, Christ the Lord. Clear connotations of kingdom and clear connotations of kingship. He didn't go to Herod and announce that there was a king coming to elicit Herod's help. He he didn't go to a mighty ruler and an army to provide protection for the child. 
In Luke's gospel, we don't have the three kings coming from afar bringing gifts to the child. We have the angels coming and announcing to shepherds who have absolutely nothing. Nothing. If it weren't for sheep which aren't even theirs, they would be destitute. What do those shepherds do? All they can do is stand back and say, let us go and see. It is a gift that is given to them. It requires no repayment, and no repayment could ever make up for it. True peace is God's choice to lavish the gift of Jesus Christ upon us, to give us his son that we might know his salvation. How then do we receive this gift? If it's his choice, how can we know whether we've received it or not? How can I know whether it's lavished upon me? Is it just something where I show up on the final day and I turn and I say, well, I don't know if I've got the gift or not, but maybe it was given to me. The way we talk about these things theologically working out in heaven gets played out practically on the earth through this simple thing we call trust. You know that you have been chosen because you trust in this. Trust that God is indeed coming in wrath and in judgment. And what's more, trust that your sin before him, both great and small, marks you out as guilty before him, worthy of the most severe and damning penalties. But then also trust that you can escape this wrath, this judgment, this penalty through this child and this child alone. Hide yourself in him that he might be a shield against the wrath of God and a pardon for your sin. Do this, especially as we prepare for Advent. Our Advent has been waiting for the coming of Christ. We are about to sing Joy to the World. I just learned this song was not actually written for Christmas. It's not a Christmas song. It's a song about Advent, but it's not this Advent. Advent simply means coming. It is a song about the Advent the final advent, the second coming of Christ. We celebrate the fact that Christ has come, but in that celebration, we are meant to be reminded to prepare ourselves for when he comes again. And he is coming again. Yes, we've prepared for this, but we also want to make sure that this child who has come meekly, who has been laid in a manger like a lamb as he has come as a lamb, we are reminded that when he comes back the next time, he will not be coming as a lamb, but he will be coming as a lion to conquer. He will be coming as a warrior king to overthrow all those who stand against him. There is a declaration of peace for you before that time comes. There is a declaration that you can know the peace of God before that time comes. You can be prepared for that today by heralding, by listening, and by concerning yourself with the good news announced by angels that this is indeed your peace. This child has made amends for you. This child has cleared you of your sin. This child will grow into a man who will be crucified for your sins, who will absorb all of the wrath of God and be raised for your justification, that you will be freed from your sins before God, that you can be freed from your guilt, you can be pardoned, and you can have new life through the work of Jesus Christ. Herald that good news. I pray that you do and that you might with Christ, sleep tonight in heavenly peace. Merry Christmas, Crossway. Let's pray.
Father God, we are thankful for your word. We are thankful for your Christ. We are thankful that we get to celebrate his coming. And we pray, Father, that you will help us. Help us to be those who are moved by your words to believe and to trust in them. For there is a coming day when the judge of all the earth will judge rightly. He will come and he will judge both the quick and the dead. We pray, Father, that we might know him, know a sanctuary in him, know that he is a safe place for us, that your wrath might not land upon us, that our enemies will be vanquished with Christ, that we will know an eternal peace where the gates of the city will be left open, for there is no threat outside and there is no guilt within. We pray, Father, that those who are here who do not know you might trust in that, that those who do might be encouraged, that as Jesus Christ has come, so he will come again. We pray that he does, so that we might see the true and everlasting kingdom of the Prince of Peace. We ask for this in Jesus' mighty name. Amen.